Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. This sermon series, from now all the way through Easter, is called The Way, and it involves an examination of Jesus' teachings from his Sermon on the Mount, as found in the Gospel of Matthew. The importance behind this sermon series is that Jesus is revising many of the laws that we find in the Old Testament. It's important for our understanding as Christians to understand where he comes from and how he interprets those laws. I hope you enjoy this series. Friends, our Old Testament reading comes from Deuteronomy, the book of law, beginning in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances, that the Lord your God has charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you so that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently, so that it may go well with you, and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children, and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. We are talking about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So, as you all know, we're doing a new sermon series. It's called The Way. And each week we are looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as found in Matthew. We're going to be doing this from now all the way through Easter. And last week we talked about the Beatitudes. For those of you here, do you remember what that word Beatitude means? What's it mean? Blessing. Very good, very good. And uh, this week we should be doing Salt and Light. That's actually the next Part of this, but I'm giving that to the youth for them to do in February, uh, Youth Sunday, which is at the end of February. Today, we're going to be talking about law. And in order to discuss the law, I actually like to tell you a little story about my time when I was in seminary. So, when I first got to seminary, you had a choice. Since you had to learn Hebrew and Greek, you could actually do it during the year, or you could do it 
in like this intensive in the summer. It was an eight-week intensive course. And I said, I'll do it in the summer, get it out of the way. So I went and I started my Hebrew course in the summer. And I got to know this guy. His name was Rob LeBron. And he lived up in the Bronx. And he said, Alex, would you like to come with me one day up to my family's apartment and then we'll go to church on Sunday? I said, sure. Love to do that. You know, I'm in seminary. I'm trying to get all these new church experiences in. So we head up to the Bronx, uh, and we stay the night, and then the next morning we go to this church. And this church was very, very different from our community here, let's put it that way. Um, I was very much a fish out of water. I was only one of a handful of white people in the church. It was a Pentecostal church to boot, which means that they were speaking in tongues. Have you ever been to a church where they speak in tongues? It's scary. So, <laughs> that's part of how the service is going. And then the pastor is talking about sin a lot. Like, the entire sermon's about sin. And he ends it this way. He says, you all know you haven't been living the right way. You know that God can see all those horrible things you do in secret. So what are you waiting for? It's time to get right with God. Jesus died for your sins. And all you have to do is believe. So come on up here and get saved. And people would start coming to the front, and then people would pray over them. They would dunk them into a big pool of water. I think we should do that. We should get a big pool in here. You know, the sprinkle thing just doesn't do it for me. We'll get you really underneath it. And they would be saved. And I started thinking about this, and I would watch, as I watched this happen, I was like, well, what is the draw? Why are people coming up? And really, it's that line, isn't it? Jesus died for your sins, that's the line that really gets people to come up. You've probably heard this. Evangelicals say it a lot. The street corner preachers down in Chicago, that's what they're yelling at you. Jesus died for your sins. Now, what does that mean, usually? What it means to us, generally speaking, right, is this idea that we've been forgiven by God. But we say it so much that I think in many ways it's lost its meaning for us. Because it's not as simple a phrase as you might think it to be. First of all, let's try to define that word sin for a minute. I think that's an important word to try to define. So in popular culture, the word sin, it is probably defined as an action or behavior that is deemed reprehensible by society. So that's, that's the, the popular culture way of thinking of it. But you all know that sin is something much, much deeper than being socially irresponsible, right? Because when it comes to sin, particularly in a religious context, it has to do with what God deems to be unacceptable. That's the important thing, that God deems it. So the question is, how do we figure out what's on God's list of do's and don'ts? Like, how do we figure out what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing, right? Because we need that if we're going to define it. So where do we look? It's in your pew, just in case you were wondering. The hymnal, that's it. The hymnal. <laughs> it's the Bible, of course, right? Now you open up your Bible, and most of the do's and don'ts are found in the Old Testament, particularly the first five books, known as the Torah. And in that Torah, it contains 613 different commandments or laws. Now these regulate everything from what you're supposed to eat, this is known as kosher law, to what you're supposed to wear, the fibers that are supposed to be in your clothes, to how you're supposed to compensate 
for when you do something wrong. Sometimes you have to pay money. Other times you have to sacrifice an animal on an altar. You all have your sheep in your backyard, right? That you all have. You'd have to take your sheep to the altar and have it slaughtered so that you could be forgiven. So if we were to formulate a definition of sin based on the Old Testament, I think what we would say is that sin is any thought, word, or deed that contradicts God's law as found in the Torah, in those 613 commandments. Fair enough? Fair enough, right? It's okay, you can respond, it's all right. (laughs) Fair enough, okay. And we see this in what Judy read to us this morning. This is essentially what it says. It says, God says, if you keep all my decrees and all my commandments that I have commanded you, then your life will be long. But then we come to Christians, us, people sitting in this room, right? And we, we tend to have a little bit of a different take. Do you all follow those 613 commandments? Do you even know those 613 commandments? Did you know that there were 613 commandments? No, right? So what do we care more about? We care more about Jesus' teachings in the New Testament. Those take precedence for us. So if we were to define it for us, we would say a sin is any thought, word, or deed that goes against Jesus' redefinition of those Old Testament laws. But saying that isn't as clear-cut as you might think because of what we read this morning. Let's take a look again at what Jesus says. This is really, really fascinating right here. This is what he says. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments, by the commandments, by the way, what is he talking about? The 613 of them? And teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you've heard other pastors preach on this text, what they will tell you is that Jesus came, he fulfilled the law, he lived it perfectly, so we wouldn't have to. You've probably heard that before, right? Now, that sounds great, and it's wonderful because what it does is it says, well, we as Christians, we claim exemption from the law. But if you read what he's saying, I don't think he's saying that. I don't think he's saying that we're exempt from the law. Is he saying, oh, I came to fulfill it so you didn't have to do it? No. What's he saying? He's saying, I came to fulfill, but at the same time, I expect you to do these things. That you can't just say, no, I can't do them. And in fact, if you don't do them, then you're actually sinning. You're actually doing the wrong thing. If I were to stand up here and say, hey, don't follow those 613 commandments, I would be leading you to sin. So this backs Christians into a little bit of a corner. Because how can we claim that Jesus died for our sins when the majority of Christians seem to disagree with Jesus about what constitutes a sin? You see what I'm saying? We disagree. We say, oh, we don't need to follow those laws. And he says, yes, you do. (laughs) You do need to follow them. Now, what you might sit there and say is, well, Alex, does it really matter? I mean, you know, the fact is, regardless of how you define a sin, it's all bad. So even if we're supposed to be following the 613 commandments, sure, we might be, we might supposed to be doing that, right? But at the same time, Jesus died for it, and aren't we going to be forgiven anyway? Like, in the end, isn't it all just kind of, it's a wash, right? (laughs) And yes, you are correct. You could say that. But doesn't that kind of miss the point? Like, if you're a Christian, if you actually take that term and you identify with it, what that means is you should be wanting to live the life that Jesus wants you to live. 
So it raises the question, would it be more appropriate for us to live like Jews following these 613 commandments? Would that be more in line with Jesus' thinking of how we are supposed to live our lives? And to answer this question, I have to admit to you that I do something very Jewish. Jews ask a lot of questions, which is what I do. It's probably because I got Judaism, Jewish blood in my background. And so to answer the question, I'm going to ask a question. And the question I'm going to ask is, what is the purpose of those 613 laws? Why do they exist? So in order to answer whether we should be following them, we need to answer, what is the purpose behind them? And the rabbis, and by the way, are we Jewish? I mean, we're not Jewish in here, so we need to turn to the rabbis to answer this question, because they follow them. They give a two-pronged answer to this. Now, the first prong of the answer is to say that the purpose of the law is to bring God into every aspect of our lives. That's the first prong of it. So, from the time you get up in the morning until you go to bed at night, these laws are something you're supposed to think about. So let me give you an example. When you all make breakfast in the morning, do you think about what you're making? Do you think about, you know, you get up and you say, I think about what I want, I want some eggs. So you take out a pan, you throw it into the pan, you cook it up and you eat it. Is it much more than that for you guys? Probably not, right? But if you follow kosher law, it's a lot more complicated. Because when you get up to cook that food, there are certain pots and pans that you have to use that are very specific when you cook it. You can't mix certain foods together. And then when you begin, you have to say a prayer right before you eat, and then you go through, and then you say a prayer at the end. The entire point is that it's taking the action of eating, which is a very simple action, and it's surrounding it with God. Do you understand that? That's very important that you see that point. It's surrounding it with God. And that's the point of the vast majority of these laws in the Old Testament. It's taking ordinary, average, everyday things, and it's lifting it up and bringing attention to God. So in this way, the religion of Judaism is really a religion of rituals. Of rituals. Now, rituals can be good and they can be bad. One way that a ritual is good is that it can actually enhance your relationship with God. So what do we do on this table? What do we do back here? What's, the, what's it called? Communion. Communion, right? It's a supper. How often do we do it? Probably what? What Once a month? Something like that? Right? That, about the average? Now, we do it once a month because the idea is that if you do it too often, then it starts to lose its meaning. You want it to be special for you, right? And that's the benefit of rituals, that when you do it and you make it special, it can enhance your relationship. Also, on top of that, if you happen to be Jewish, like the 613, that's just the start of it. There's a whole lot more that you have to learn beyond that. And so, if you really are into the law, it actually does, has the side benefit of preventing you from doing things that are immoral. Because frankly, to actually keep up with all those things, like to actually do them, by the time you get done with your day, you don't have much other time to do things that are wrong in your life, right? So it's just like, you just, this is, it's just your whole time is spent doing this. But the downside, the negative side to ritual, is that it can become mindless. It can become very rote, so that you don't really think about what you're doing. And this is something that you really have to realize is the problem with ritual. Because ritual, as much as it's supposed to enhance your life, when it becomes mindless, it actually detracts from your relationship with God because it becomes everything. Have you ever met somebody 
who's really into ritual, like ritual is kind of their thing, whether it be in religion or elsewhere. If you've met somebody like that who's really into rituals, what's interesting about that is, is that for them, the ritual, that is God to them. They can't think of God outside of that. And of course, one of Jesus' primary messages is, hey, God is so much greater than any law, any ritual, any religion. And so Jesus is really walking a fine line here. He's saying, look, ritual's important. The law is important. You need this to enhance your life with God. But at the same time, it can't be everything about your relationship with God. So, that being the case, this brings us to the fact that you can't actually follow all of these laws that you come across in the Old Testament. And there's a reason why you can't do them. You'll hear pastors say, and this really, I have to just say this, because whenever I hear this, if you hear this, this is wrong, okay? If a pastor sits up there and says, it is impossible for somebody to follow all 613 of those laws, that's not true. You can do it. Trust me, you can There were many people during Jesus' day who they would say, this man is perfect with the law. This woman is perfect with the law. So people can do it. The problem is is that you actually can't physically do it anymore. So when I told you you had to be forgiven, what do you need to do to be forgiven? I told you that you need to do what? you got to sacrifice something, right? So the fact is, let's say you do something wrong. You want to take your sheep to go get sacrificed. Can you do that anymore? No, because the temple where you're supposed to do that, it doesn't exist. It was knocked down almost 2,000 years ago in 70 AD by the Roman government. You can't do it. The army came in, blew it apart. So you can't follow that law. All those laws, and there's lots of them where you're supposed to sacrifice, you can't do that. So let's say, for instance, though, that you're outside, you're walking around, it starts to rain, and your shirt gets wet, and you come inside, you take the shirt off, you throw it on the ground, it's in this kind of wet heap on the floor, and it gets moldy. Do you know what you're supposed to do according to the scriptures? You're supposed to take that moldy shirt to the priest and have the priest examine it to tell you whether or not you're supposed to throw it away or whether you can keep it. But you can't do that anymore, can you? There's no more priests in Judaism. They went away with the temple. When the temple was destroyed, no more priests. Can't do that any longer. Or how about the year of Jubilee? Do you know what the year of Jubilee is? Every 50 years, all financial debts are supposed to be forgiven. Can you imagine walking into a bank and being like, hey, you know all those student loans you've been trying to collect from me? Well, guess what? You don't have to do it anymore because all my debts, they've been forgiven. It's great. I'm sure the teller would be like, yeah, see how that works out for you when the repo man comes to take all your stuff. (laughs) Like the fact is you can't live out all of these commandments anymore. It's not possible. So as a result, this leads to the second prong in what we're dealing with. And the second prong is that these laws exist as a signpost for when you're walking into territory that is morally questionable. And the best way to understand this, the best analogy for this, is to think of our modern traffic laws. So when you get your license, and that's handed to you, you are expected to abide by all of the traffic signs that you come to when you're driving on your journey, right? So let's say you come to a stop sign. No, I did not steal this from the stop sign outside, okay? (laughs) You come to a stop sign. Are you supposed to stop at that stop sign when you get to it? If you blow through that stop sign, have you broken the law? Absolutely you have, right? Because the law says that when you come to a stop sign, you are supposed to stop for three seconds 
My wife thought that was interesting. She did not know that. Three seconds. TC, this morning, he was like, it's a yield, son, right? Like, you're supposed to yield. Three seconds, and then you can move again. But here's a deeper question on this one. Deeper question. Is it morally wrong to blow through a stop sign? Now, yes, it is the law that when you come to a stop sign, you are supposed to stop. But it is not morally wrong not to stop at a stop sign. Because the reason why this stop sign exists, the reason why it's there, is because the people who examine traffic patterns, they've realized that if this stop sign is not there at this particular place, that the likelihood of an accident will increase. So, no, it's not morally wrong for you to blow through a stop sign, but the consequences of what could happen if you do blow through that stop sign, those could be morally wrong. Because you could end up hitting another car, or you could hit a pedestrian. And killing someone? Yeah, I think we can agree. That's morally wrong, right? And that's what most of these laws, these 613 laws, that's what they are like. They are not in and of themselves morally wrong. Yes, there's the ones like don't kill, don't steal, don't lie. Like those are morally wrong. But the vast majority of the rest of them, they're like this. They're signposts, right? Because is it morally wrong for you to break the Sabbath, to work on the Sabbath? Is it morally wrong for you to yoke your oxen with a donkey? Is it morally wrong for you to not build a wall around your roof? No, there's nothing morally wrong with any of that stuff. But it's a signpost for us that's a warning that, hey, down the road, something bad could be coming. So let's take the Sabbath as an example. That word Sabbath, what does it mean? It means rest. And the whole point of the Sabbath day, which we take as Sunday, is a day of rest, reflection, to be with your family, to be with your community, to be with God. That's the whole point behind it. And this is really an important time because you all know in our lives, just as today it was back then, that work can consume you as a person, right? I know many, many people who never, ever leave their work behind. They always have their phone, they're always on their email, they're always connected to their job, no matter what. And this has consequences for our lives. Because not only is it really unhealthy, and it wears you down, but you end up missing out on the most important things in your life. And those most important things are relationships. Can we agree on that? Relationships with your friends, relationship with your spouse, relationship with your children. And I want to focus on the children one right here. If you are a parent and you spend all of your time focusing on work, you run the risk of alienating yourself from your children. And I see this happen a lot. Because like in this church, everybody in this church, you're going to provide for your kids, right? I know that. You're going to make sure they have the food they need, the, the house so that they are okay, right? They're going to have the resources they need to go to all their activities and do all that stuff, right? But the fact is, just because you're physically present with them doesn't mean that you're mentally present with them. And when you're mentally checked out, even though you're supposed to be there with them, I think that is morally wrong. And I say that as someone who speaks from experience on this. Because the pastorate, when you're a pastor, you know the average amount of time a person lasts in the pastorate? Five years. Five years before they leave because it chews you up and it spits you out. And when I first got here, that was my trajectory. 
Because I got here, and this job was everything to me. I thought about it all the time, and as a result, when I was with my kids, I wasn't really mentally present with them because I was always thinking about something that was going on here. And as a result of that, I actually missed out on a lot of important things that were happening with my kids. And thankfully, I woke up to the fact that if I didn't take some Sabbath time, if I didn't really rest and be present with them, then I was going to wake up one day, my spouse wasn't going to recognize me anymore, right? I wasn't going to have a relationship with her, and my kids were going to be grown and gone, and I would have no relationship with them. Thankfully, I realized I needed to make this job secondary to my relationships, and it's changed my life in a big way. But it came as a result of abiding by that law of Sabbath. Now, is it wrong to not observe the Sabbath? No. Is it wrong not to come to church? No, but don't quote me on that. You need to be here. (laughs) But the law is there for a reason. It's saying to you, hey, stop. Slow down. You're going too fast, and you're going to hurt yourself. When you don't take time to rest, when you don't take time to reflect, you end up making mistakes. And what I've found is that when I'm going full force forward, when I'm only concerned about my thing, what I want to do, and I'm not thinking about any, anybody else, I end up hurting the people around me because I say things I shouldn't say, I do things I shouldn't do, and when I finally finish this really important thing that I need to get done, left in my wake are all these relationships that I just didn't pay any attention to. But then, when I started to observe the Sabbath, when I said, okay, I'm going to take that rest, I became a better person, I became a better father, I became a better husband, and ultimately I became a better Christian, which is the whole point, right? Don't we want to follow Jesus better? We want to live the way Jesus wants us to live? So I started this morning by asking you a question. How do you define that word sin? And I would say that for most of us, the way we define the word sin is when you break the law, right? When you blow through the stop sign. That's the sin. That's not the sin. That's not what God cares about. God's not up in heaven with a little tally sheet sitting there marking the number of times you broke the law so that when you die, he's like, well, Alex, you broke the Sabbath 650 times. What are we going to do about this, huh? What am I supposed to say? No, I don't think God cares about that. What God cares about are the consequences of what happens when you do not heed the warnings of the signposts that have been put in front of you. Because those consequences, those are the things that have real pain, they cause real pain and real suffering to the people around us. And that's what Jesus came for, that's what Jesus died for, And that's why we need to make the law important in our lives. And so this is how I want to end this morning. And I want you to hear this. I think it's very, very important for us to observe these laws and to look at them and to try to bring them into our lives. Now, realistically, I know that most of you are sitting here saying to yourself, I appreciate what you're saying, Alex. I appreciate that you're probably correct about that. But I am not going to go read the Old Testament and I'm not going to memorize those 613 laws and bring them into my life, I don't have the time, I don't have the desire. And you know what? That's okay. Because the entire point of this sermon series, if you come here every week, Jesus brings up a law, he says, this is the law, this is what I think. 
And the beautiful thing is by just being here, you're living out that scripture that we read this morning where he says you need to take the law seriously. And if you come here and you're a part of this, you're going to do that. You're going to live into that. Because what does Jesus say? Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. For whoever does them and teaches others to do them, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what I want for all of you. I want every single person in here to walk proudly, to know that they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to do that together as we explore how Jesus wants us to live our lives. And with that, I'll say, Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.